Hello, honeys, and welcome back to the third episode of The Business. As always, we will be talking about some of the major things to come up in art world news from the last week. We've got a wide coverage today, everything from politics to institutions to discoveries and more. So sit back, relax, and let's break it down. Our first headline from last week, a debate broke out amongst Boston politicians about the potential expansion of a free museums program for school children. The Boston Herald reports that two city councilors, Aaron Murphy and Ed Flynn, took legal action last week to expand an existing program that provides free admission to many Boston cultural institutions to Boston public school children and families. The resolution aimed to expand the BPS Sundays program to cover all Boston school children, even those not enrolled in public schools. The filing of this resolution is in line with Mayor Michelle Wu's public promises to waive admission fees at various cultural institutions for BPS students and families on certain dates through at least August, as well as being a response to the success of the BPS Sunday program. More than 2,500 families have attended Boston's art as well as science museums, zoos and aquariums, and the local children's museum as a result of it. However, pressure is mounting to include the 20,000-plus Boston children who are homeschooled, who attend charter or parochial schools, or are otherwise educated within the city, especially from a large-scale local GOP PAC, which claims that the exclusion of these children is, quote, politically motivated, end quote. The fact that the BPS program is funded using tax dollars from all students' families, not only public school students' families, is another factor of the mounting pressure. The only response that the Boston Herald reported from city officials is that a city spokesperson said that the BPS started with public school students in order to, quote, best understand how to engage community members and improve this program, end quote, indicating that expansion and other changes are under active consideration by the program administrators. Moving on to major discoveries. Yet another archaeological site of great importance has been found beneath a national museum, this time in the UK. Experts from Archaeology Southeast, part of the UCL Institute of Archaeology, have uncovered evidence of a Saxon town, which was once called Lundenwick, below the current site of the National Gallery in London. And of course, we care about this because... It proves that the urban center of Saxon-era London extended much further west than previously estimated, and that fact affects the understanding that we have of the town's changes and its footprint across time, from its start as a walled Roman city called Londinium, abandoned in the 5th century, to that shift west when it was called Lundenwick, which was a waterfront trading center, and eventually to the footprint of London that we know pretty much from the Renaissance and beyond. Art News quotes Sarah Young, the director of the project resulting in these findings, as saying, quote, It's an honor for the National Gallery to be part of a discovery like this, 
and it brings home to us how everything we are building and reconstructing as part of this project will be part of the fabric and history of London for centuries to come." End quote. A soon-to-be-published study of an Amazon rock art site will change the dates of the settlement of the Amazon as we know them. The study will be published in the upcoming March issue of Quaternary Science Reviews and provides proof that humankind settled the Colombian Amazon 13,000 years ago. Other evidence of settlement found in the same site, the Serrania de la Lindosa, on the northern edge of the Colombian Amazon, includes everything from rock shelters to stone tools and massive displays of rock art. Additionally, soil sample components indicate not only food that was prepared and consumed, but also animal bones, plant remains, and ochres. The study will provide further insight into how the area was used, not only once it was settled, but in the instances in time without occupation as well, some of which lasted more than a millennium. Pretty sure we can all think of some good reasons why this would matter, but in case you're struggling, Live Science reports that Mark Robinson, who is an associate professor of archaeology at the University of Exeter in the UK, said, quote, The peopling of South America represents one of the great migrations of human history, but their arrival into the Amazon biome has been little understood. Our recent excavations, however, help to fill this gap, not only dating their arrival to much earlier than previously understood, but also providing novel insights into their lives and historical trajectories during the Holocene, end quote. The Holocene is the period following the last ice age, which began 11,700 years ago. A Russian auctioneer house was at the center of media controversy last week when it sold a painting that is believed to have been stolen from a Ukrainian museum. Public notice of the controversial sale of the work was raised by a tweet from Gyundiz Mamadov, the former deputy prosecutor general of Ukraine. The work in question is Moonlit Night by Ivan Ivazovsky, and the sale occurred February 18th at the Moscow Auction House. The work was sold for a million dollars, but the painting was allegedly previously stolen by a group of Russian retired servicemen while it was on loan to the Simferopol Arts Museum in Crimea in 2014, before the current Ukrainian-Russian war really exploded. The controversy is centered on whether this is the canvas that was stolen from the Simferopol while on loan from a different regional Ukrainian history museum, the Mariupol Museum of Local Lore, or if it is, as claimed by the auction house, simply a work by the same artist with the same title, and what the sale would mean in either case. Tensions are understandably high in this debate. Said Lydia Zeininger, executive director of the Ukrainian Institute of America to Art News, putting the artwork up for public auction is an affront to international rules of order, a flagrant violation of UNESCO's laws protecting stolen art, and further clear evidence of Russia's genocidal campaign to destroy Ukraine's cultural heritage, end quote. 
The auction house has dismissed these claims as a simple coincidence of names. It argues, quote, the painting it sold dates from 1878, depicts Constantinople, and was acquired in Sweden at the Stockholm's Auctionsverk in 2008, whereas the other dates from 1882, depicts the Black Sea coast near Theodosia, and remains in the Simferopol Museum of Arts, end quote. If it is the allegedly stolen Ivazovsky, this would be the cherry on top of Russia's documented total plundering of Ukrainian art and artifacts, plus the destruction of at least one museum since the start of the invasion two years ago. This is significant because, as the New York Times reported in 2023, quote, International art experts say the plundering may be the single biggest collective art heist since the Nazis pillaged Europe in World War II, end quote. A bit of good news and relief for NOLA natives, one of Banksy's few remaining works on walls from the Lower Ninth Ward across the city to Updown, done in 2008, is indeed safe, though the site of it a townhouse wall on the corner of Clio and Carondelet Streets has been painted the same pink as the rest of the building's facade. That is because the owner of the building, Michael Hain, brought in the preservationist and architect Mark Rabinowitz to remove, pack, and ship the work to be professionally restored by Evergreen's Architectural Arts in New York City. The work will be back, and not sold, but placed inside a windowed, hinged frame for either indoor or outdoor viewing and better protection of the work. The Banksy in question is a portrait of an anti-graffiti activist who goes by the title Grey Ghost, who in the image is wearing coveralls and applying grey paint to the wall. Actor Seth Rogen officially announced last week that he will launch a ceramic-based reality TV show. Says Art News, quote, The patron saint of POTS will serve as an executive producer and guest judge on the Great Canadian Pottery Throwdown, end quote. Rogan originally got into ceramics because of his wife, Lauren Miller, during the pandemic, but has committed to the craft to the point that according to both Robert Silverman, director and Uri Potkonen, owner of major famed ceramic studios in New York, each say that he's got talent. The show will serve as a British counterpart to the American Great Pottery Throwdown, a competition of progressively difficult pottery challenges performed by diverse but amateur potters. The show will be hosted by Jennifer Robinson, a.k.a. Jocelyn Shit. And the judges will be Brendan Tang and Natalie Waddell. History and theater nerds, get ready to add to your bucket list because an ancient Greek theater has reopened. That's right, Casope, built in the 3rd century BCE in Epirus, Greece, recently finished renovations and opened to the public once again with a capacity of 6,000 spectators. Could you imagine that, seeing something in an ancient Greek, like an actual ancient Greek theater? Oh my god. It overlooks the neighboring peninsula, gulfs, island, mountains, and according to the Greek reporter was, quote, massively damaged by Roman forces in 168 through 167 BCE, end quote, and 
quote, abandoned in 31 BCE when remaining inhabitants resettled to Nicopolis, the region's new capital, end quote. The restoration was made possible by the 2016 launch of a crowdfunding campaign organized by the nonprofit organization Diazoma, as well as the National Bank of Greece. We also had some big headlines come out of the institutional side of the arts world. First, the New Mexico State University at Las Cruces will digitize its Mexican Retablos art collection. Retablos are, by the NMSU's definition, religious images painted on tin plates and other found materials that depict religious narratives of hope and suffering. They have roots in or very strong influences from the 16th through 18th century European and Mexican arts. KFOX TV reports that NMSU's Office of Research, Creativity, and Economic Development will fund the digitization of over 2,000 objects in the Margie and Bobby Rankin Retablo Gallery, which is located on campus. This is exciting because it's a giant scale project and will also reportedly form the largest U.S. public collection of its kind. But the aims of the project include greater accessibility, especially for those who can't visit in person. And this will increase the draw for art historians worldwide to contribute to research and other projects on those collections. The British Museum, however, faced backlash from the Greek Minister of Culture, Lena Mendoni, who spoke out in regards to using the Parthenon sculptures, one of Greece's most prized and missed set of sculptures, for a backdrop for a fashion show. She stated, quote, By organizing a fashion show in the rooms where the Parthenon sculptures are exhibited, the British Museum, once again, proves its zero respect for the masterpieces of Phidias, end quote. The problem is that Mendoni sees this use as, quote, trivializing and, quote, insulting to the monument as well as the values it represents. And it is salt in the wound of a long insult because the Parthenon marbles were, in fact, stolen by British troops during World War II. The incident just adds fuel to the existing fire that Greece has lit under the British Museum to return these sculptures. A couple of the current forms of pressure in use include cultural diplomacy as well as legal action. A new Met exhibition on the Harlem Renaissance opened with much acclaim, I'm sure to their relief. So much attention has been drawn to this particular exhibition because it is a sort of redo for a past exhibition on the Harlem Renaissance that uh, did not go particularly well. In 1969, the Met organized a show called Harlem On My Mind, which was the first survey of black culture in the U.S. It was also heavily criticized for only showing photos of black people in the exhibition. It was, in the words of Saltz, writing for Vulture, quote, as if the people themselves were curiosities on display, end quote, in what ended up to be a pretty racist-looking fiasco. The current show is somewhat a means of righting those wrongs, but mostly an attempt to make a better contribution to art history. 
This one includes 150 plus works of art by mostly black artists from the scenes of Chicago, Philly, San Fran, and even a Paris across the galleries. The scenes include the activism of the Harlem Renaissance, as well as everyday life. Fascinatingly, one photographer that was featured in the Met's 1969 show, James Van Der Zee, is also featured in this one. The show is also something of an attempt to draw attention to how much impact the Harlem Renaissance had on modernism. Says Saltz, quote, The Harlem Renaissance largely took place in the 1920s and 30s, just when modernism was reaching the zenith of its influence across art, literature, and music. Yet these two periods of heady artistic activity have been walled off from each other in the collective memory, the black portion of the story having gone mostly ignored. The Met's show about Harlem suggests that we have gotten modernism, the Big Bang of 20th century art, all wrong and that it was wilder and even more radical than we had known, end quote. So this show really attempts to emphasize black modern subjects as portrayed by black modern artists. It aims to highlight historically excluded perspectives, especially artistic representational perspectives, and to demonstrate that white modernists were often influenced by black life at that time. In the words of the curator, Denise Morell, who I have admired for a long time, even personally, quote, it was written out of history, and I think our goal now is to write it back into history, end quote. However, the reflections of the separations between the Harlem Renaissance and modernism are even still visible in this exhibition. Most of the artworks in the show come from historically black colleges and universities, black cultural institutions, and other private collections, rather than museum ones, which tells us quite a bit about who is prioritizing which parts of the two overlapping histories. Morell also explains that it was a multi-year search for the objects that preceded the planning, so you had to look harder for them, and that also shows an inequity in accessibility. Through not only the content of the exhibition, but the understanding of the difficulty in the process of creating it, of finding enough Harlem Renaissance artworks to support these proposed connections, it demonstrates how the world of art history needs to catch up to where this exhibition and Morel are at. All right, honeys, thank you for sticking out this longer episode of The Business. I hope that everything that I chose to include was entertaining enough to excuse the length. I will be back next week with more news for you, so keep an eye out for The Business number four. Talk to you soon, honeys. This podcast was created, produced, written, hosted, edited, and fact-checked by master's graduate Celia Bugno. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe on all of your favorite streaming platforms as well as your social medias.